Well, I appreciate this opportunity. Would you uh, join me in a word of prayer as we uh, begin our, our session together? Uh, Father, uh, I'm grateful to you for this opportunity to share with brothers and sisters uh, some reflections with regard to preaching your word. We, uh, we understand it's a, it is indeed a, a noble task, often daunting, and we lean on you for it. I pray that you would be with me, give me clarity as I share, um, and may we uh, be enthused to preach every corner of your word. We, together with you, want to exalt your name and your word above all things. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think I know some of you, some of you have not uh, met yet, but I'm Lucas O'Neill. I pastor Christian Fellowship Church. It's about 40 minutes from here in Itasca. And uh, we just finished wrapping up a sermon series on Revelation. And I knew I would have just finished that prior to this, just prior to this conference. And I don't know if it was my idea or Eric's idea, but he thought, why not share some reflections on preaching Revelation? I'm not a Revelation expert. I'm not an apocalyptic literature guru. I'm the last guy that I ever thought would give any kind of talk on preaching Revelation. Um, so I'm not taking questions. No, I, you can ask questions. Um, I just won't have answers. Uh, but consider these reflections of someone who uh, was putting it off and just did it. And as, as, as I reflected on it, I saw my church really benefiting from it. I benefited from it. And so maybe something I share uh, just commends it to you and you'll be encouraged to take your congregation through it if you have the opportunity. I don't remember exactly how it came about that I decided to preach through Revelation uh, earlier this year, but I think it involved the convergence of a couple things. One is that the congregation was excited about it. If I mentioned the Revelation, like, ooh, are you going to preach on it? And there's just something in the air. I don't know if it's just my congregation or others, but I think there's there's something to it. Uh, and I was also sick and tired of dodging it, putting it off. I, this was just my excuse to just dive in there and, and try to figure some things out. And um, knowing that you're not going to figure everything out, but it, it, you dive in and do what you can with it. And then afterwards, the feedback was, was great. Uh, not to my credit, but I think just someone, anyone, walking us through and helping clear the clutter on, on something like the book of Revelation was really helpful to people. So I hope in our brief time together I can encourage you toward preaching it. What you have in your outline are seven reasons to preach Revelation, besides the fact that it's Scripture, so preach it. Uh, but seven reasons to preach it. And then a sort of bonus material, if I have time, seven tips on approaching the book of Revelation, which I think sometimes our hesitation is maybe more just the complexity of the book. It just feels too difficult. And maybe some things I share can help you feel a little bit more confident with regard to uh, approaching the book. All right, without any further delay, why preach Revelation? Um, and these are in your notes uh, there in your, in your uh, booklet. Uh, to prepare your flock for internal dangers. Um, these first two reasons are very pastoral because actually the book of Revelation is, is quite pastoral. It's, it's not just straight apocalyptic, it's also epistolary, right? Um, not just in those seven letters to the seven churches, but throughout in its closing and its opening, there's a sense that it's meant for the church. It's not meant for an ivory tower for theologians to debate over. 
It's meant for people experiencing hardships and etc. So the first one, to prepare your flock for internal dangers. Uh, Revelation addresses false teaching, syncretism, immorality, deceitfulness of riches, cults, right? Um, so if you, just going through the letters to the seven churches in Ephesus, the, the message to Ephesus, uh, Jesus points out those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Uh, the letter to Smyrna, he talks about those who slander or blaspheme. They say they're Jews and they are not. They're a synagogue of Satan. To Pergamum, he talks about those who hold to the teaching of Balaam and those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Uh, the message to Thyatira, that's where he talks about the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing Christ's servants. Uh, Sardis, he tells them to remember what they have received and heard. This is, this is their doctrine that they hold to. Uh, to Philadelphia, again, he talks about those who say they're Jews and are not. Uh, Laodicea doesn't have a, uh, an overt piece on doctrine or false teaching, but you see this emphasis going just through the seven letters uh, and beyond. Later, you'll, talk, you'll, you'll see the false prophet, right? Um, and how the second beast wields religion. Really, those two beasts in Revelation 13, I think, you know, you've got that first beast coming out of the sea, and it's very governmental, it's very kind of political, and then that beast from the land is more religious in nature. And uh, those sort of government and religion, outside pressure, inside pressure, you're helping your congregation with regard to those Two things, but with regard to that inside pressure, uh, and I'll try to share this quickly. Um, by the time I got to Revelation four, a couple approached me after the service and was just like, "You're getting this all wrong. Like, what are you doing?" And my first instinct was, "What am I doing? I don't like. I don't know what I'm doing." But I thought I was going to get this like at Revelation twenty, not Revelation four, the, the throne room scene. I thought this would be like the millennium or. You know, sometime later in the chapters, they'd be like, you haven't talked about the rapture yet, you know, or something like that. Revelation 4. And so a few different times they just came up to me and they said, you're not doing this right. You're not doing that right. And they were just talking in circles. and I couldn't understand what they were saying. And uh, I started to smell something funny. And it was this real maverick interpretation of Revelation. They wouldn't tell me where they got it from. I'd never heard of it before. Uh, all churches ever have gotten Revelation wrong, except for them. Uh, sounds like a cult, right? That's what I thought, and that's what it turned out to be. So we had this sort of cult where actually the wife of the couple is, had already been trained to infiltrate a church, be quiet, go along with things, uh, gain influence in the church, and then eventually try to get some of the people in the church to go along with the cult. And I think when I was preaching through Revelation, she just couldn't hold it in anymore. And it was the preaching of Revelation that exposed false teaching that was sort of insidiously making its way, trying to make its way into our congregation. By God's grace, there was no traction there. But interestingly, Revelation, the preaching of Revelation exposed it. And how does Revelation begin? By warning the churches about internal dangers. And it worked out for that for us in that way. So I'm not saying one advantage of preaching through Revelation is to expose cults, even though that happened in our congregation, but it does protect your congregation by building them up in what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation builds your Christology. It builds your Trinitarian theology. It builds your angelology. It builds your appreciation of the sufficiency of Scripture, your view of judgment, eternal punishment, 
how works play into the life of the believer in relation to grace, etc., etc. So a revelation uh, sort of builds a, a theology framework for your congregation so that when cults or false teachers push against that framework, it's not as flimsy, right? And so that's the first reason. All the reasons won't be this long, but that was one of my uh, favorite ones. Anyway, to prepare your flock for external dangers. And this is quick, it's probably obvious, but there's outside dangers as well. Persecution, ostracism, reviling that Christians experience in different ways in different places in the world and at different points throughout history. Uh, This is an obvious and unavoidable theme throughout Revelation. Uh, But just a quick thought here. Um, When I do teach homiletics, anytime a text comes up that has to do with persecution, American students don't know how to preach that to their contemporary audience. They're like, it just feels irrelevant. So there's a couple ways to deal with that. One is to help your congregations think more globally. Just because something doesn't apply to your workday tomorrow morning doesn't mean it's, it's not applicable. We need to be thinking about church globally, and because you're not experiencing persecution doesn't mean persecution isn't a reality right now, this morning, today. And so there's various ways that you can pull stats about what's happening to Christians around the world now in real time and, and help uh, make your congregation more aware The other thought is, what level of persecution do you experience? Getting defriended on Facebook? Is that the extent of it? Because some of us aren't willing to be bold enough for that. So how in the world would you ever take a bullet for Christ? So challenge them. Say, admit, we don't experience levels of persecution on that level or like they were maybe in in the early church. But we experience it this small, and how do we handle just that? And then let Revelation build them up at least for that level. So there's the inside and outside pressures that Revelation builds your people up. Number three, to refresh their appreciation for Christian unity on the central matters of eschatology. Sometimes we're so afraid to approach Revelation because of the debatable stuff, we forget about the the great unity that we actually have on the central stuff. Um, And this probably sounds counterintuitive, because... We're so embroiled in all these debates sometimes, debates that center on the millennium or the role of Israel or literal versus figurative reading, timelines, charts. But we have an opportunity here to underscore the great unity we have on the majors, and that's uh, not only important, that's refreshing. And this is certainly a lesson I learned with fresh appreciation in in the wake of the cult situation. So just a funny story, I some of the comments I would get after some sermons were just hilarious, but one of them was a, a brother that came up to me referencing, I think, the Revelation 12, the, the woman who was given the two wings of the great eagle so she can fly from the serpent. And he's like, you know what the eagle is, right? I'm like, well, why don't you tell me? That's America. I was like, all right, man. And in that moment, I thought, at least this brother understands that Jesus is the Christ, and that he's returning, and that he wins. And that's not just a throwaway line, because that cult that we just had to put down in the church did not believe in those three things I just said. And they try to use Revelation to prove it. So with relief, I can go, hey man, you got that wrong, but we're brothers, you know? (laughs) You haven't gone off the deep end yet. All right, number four to build your congregation's confidence in studying the book of Revelation. 
Okay, so you've built up your confidence to approach it by preaching through it. That's going to lend to their confidence and studying it, opening it, reading it, not skipping it. All right? You're clarifying some issues for people. You're clearing the clutter a little bit. Uh, when I announced the series, people were at our church, you know, they were really excited. Um, and the feedback that I primarily got was that they're now less confused. Um, I didn't answer all the questions for them, and I probably raised some new ones for them, but, but they were a little less confused now and a little more emboldened to study the book of Revelation. Um, and that's part of how you're building your, your congregation's hermeneutic. You're helping them learn how to handle apocalyptic literature, how to interpret symbols in relation to one another and in relation to the Old Testament, how the Old Testament is essential to John's vision. So I would say things like, don't read the book of Revelation in one hand and the newspaper in the other hand. Read the book of Revelation in one hand and the Old Testament in the other hand. That's where you need to begin. So encouraging them to learn how to read the Bible and put things together. And it's an opportunity to address in detail rather specific things that are specific to Revelation that don't get as much attention elsewhere in Scripture, such as the millennium or white throne judgment, uh, the behind-the-scenes reign of Christ, you know, things like that that Revelation really does emphasize. You get to address it. Number five, why you should preach Revelation? To demonstrate how absolutely relevant the book of Revelation is to our lives now. There's so much application there for your congregation. Um, I think there's already a, generally a fascination in the public about the end of the world. Um, and you can capitalize on that interest and steer them toward what God reveals about it and how relevant and applicational it is. As I scan through my sermons, uh, and you, the handout you got, those are on the left column, those are the sermons and the sermon titles, which aren't very creative. Don't come to me for creative sermon titles, but uh, that, that's the sermon series there. And as I scan through those, these are some of the applications that I covered in those sermons. The importance of gathering for biblical instruction and why gathering for biblical instruction in person is crucial to perseverance. How Revelation centralizes worship for us by planting the stake of worship right in the center of all the chaos in our lives. Uh, that worship is broader than just music and singing, but it does include music and singing, and we should participate with earnestness even now. That we should pray for God to act against those who persecute the saints, and that those prayers do not fall on deaf ears. We're not waiting for a time in the distant future when, for example, demons will torment the minds of unbelievers to the point of wanting death. We're seeing that now in many ways. Another one, while some fathers are too secretive, keeping their children from important things, unnecessarily distancing, distancing their children, and some fathers are too undiscerning, letting their kids on, on too, in on too much too early, our Heavenly Father knows perfectly how much to let us in on and what, it, what is for us to know, and we need to be comfortable with that. He gives us what we need to remain faithful. And just helping your people understand, like, you know what, I don't know the answer to that. And I'm not sure I will have the answer to that. And that, that could be okay. Another one, the world will continue to oppose the church, but they cannot defeat the church. Or one way you know you are safe from the wrath of the dragon is that obedience is showing up in your life. I'll give you one more. Having comforts in this life is not sinful. Having comforts in this life is not sinful, but we are most vulnerable when our comforts are threatened. 
So these are just applications from what's happening in the text and how it applies to the life of your people, and it's very broad, as you can see. Um, But again, this is an opportunity to prove that all Scripture is indeed profitable for every good work. This is an opportunity for you to do something a little different and put your money where your mouth is that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Show them. All right, number six, to enrich them with the gospel in fresh ways. Revelation, preaching through Revelation is a vivid way to present certain aspects of the gospel each week with themes of judgment, wrath, counting the cost of following Christ, how Jesus will vindicate us for that cost, etc. Uh, themes that fill out and complete the gospel. Give me some examples by way of questions. What is the good news if not complete with the renewal of the earth that is under corruption? What is the good news if the wicked go unpunished? If the persecuted saints go without vindication? Are we understanding the good news accurately if the role of works in our lives is left out of view? Have we really bought into the good news if we only adhere to it in good times? How sure is our gospel if we waver on the hope that the Lord will return? What does persevering obedience have to do with salvation? So these are, these are ways in which you can flesh out the gospel and build it up so that it's robust and hearty in the minds and hearts of your people. And then finally, number seven, uh, to expand your congregation's doctrinal breadth, okay? Uh, you'll have the opportunity to directly address what are often unfrequented areas of theology for a congregation. I'll just a couple quick examples. Uh, eternal torment versus annihilationism. Got to talk about it if you're going through Revelation. Or how about the new earth as our promised land and not a, a disembodied, quasi-invisible state? Or maybe wrath as an attribute of Christ, actually. That might be a missing category for your people. Okay, so that was quickly seven, seven reasons to preach Revelation. I'm going to give you a little bit of bonus material and another set of seven, because I've been in Revelation for almost a year, y'all. Everything's seven, ten, or twelve, or multiples of. All right, so I think, again, probably the main reason, at least for me, for not preaching Revelation... For so long, uh, it just feels too complex to handle, especially in a lectio continua series. You know, lectio continua as, a, as opposed to lectio selecta. Lectio selecta being I choose my passages each week. Lectio continua being what's on tap for next week is the next pericope, right? And when you're doing lectio continua, you've got to. If the book is doing cycles, your sermons are doing cycles. If the books are, if the chapters are recapitulatory, your sermons are recapitulatory, which can sound repetitive. That's a challenge. Uh, you can't skip the difficult things. You've got to press through it. So, the particular challenge is not just wh- you know why you should preach Revelation, but why you should preach through Revelation. And you can pick your pace. I gave you a sample pace in, in the handout, but preaching through Revelation has particular challenges, so I hope that these seven tips, if you will, (laughs) from someone who honestly felt like I stumbled my way through, uh, I hope some of these might help you.
Okay, so these are not in your, in your, uh, in your booklet, but I hope, I hope you can track with me. Number one, tips on approaching the book of Revelation for preaching. First one, uh, the first two are pretty brief. Uh, the first one is, I would recommend building their biblical theology by preaching through Old Testament books, Lectio Continua, for a good long season before preaching Revelation. I'll say it one more time. Build your congregation's biblical theology by preaching through Old Testament books, Lectio Continua, through Old Testament books, for a good long season. You'll have to determine how long and how many books, but a good season before you take them through the book of Revelation. Uh, The book of Revelation assumes a strong grasp of the Old Testament. And uh, on top of that, I think preaching Lectio Continua through Revelation in a church that's not used to that, they've not built their listener muscles to, you know, to hang with that. Uh, Revelation can feel like a really long haul. Um, I did it in 28 sermons, I think it is, I put there. In 34 weeks, so we had just a few breaks here and there, but we, we pretty much plowed through. Uh, but my congregation has gone through almost the entire Pentateuch, Lectio Continua. We still have Deuteronomy left. Um, you know, we've, we've, we've been through, we just started 1 Samuel now, but we've been through uh, other books of, we've been through some of the prophets and things like that. So they're, they're used to seeing how smaller stories connect to meta-narratives. They're, they're used to typology. They may not know the word, but, but if you describe it, oh yeah, you know, they, they kind of know what, how typology functions because we've been in the Old Testament, saturated in it for so long, that when you go to Revelation, they kind of get how these symbols work. And they're like, oh, that, yeah, Isaiah. Right? Okay, that's what Zechariah is talking about. I see, okay, I see how that works. Otherwise, it would be much harder to explain why seven spirits is the Holy Spirit, but not seven Holy Spirits. It's, it's harder to do that if they're just not used to how these Old Testament symbols work. Okay. Second, uh, discern where your congregation's potential or actual hot buttons are. You've got to know your people and which ones are going to make them go, better not say that, Pastor, or go say it, you know, preach it. Where, where are those? And then how can you navigate that with sensitivity when you know they're not in agreement with where you're coming from on the text. Uh, so hot buttons like the millennium or the role of Israel, literalism, politics, be gracious and figure out how to approach those with tact, but don't avoid them. That just will look cowardly. No one's going to appreciate that. All right, number three. Don't turn molehills into mountains, but don't flatten mountains either. Don't make something small bigger than it needs to be, but don't take things that are big and just minimize them and flatten them uh, when they need to be addressed. And some issues are, are big, big enough for their own sermon or a big portion of a sermon because they're big in the text. Right? The text makes a mountain of this issue, and you've got to address that. Some mountains exist in the minds of your listener. So, so think about, somebody just joked about the rapture. Would you say that's a, a, a molehill or a mountain in the minds of many listeners? I, I'd say probably mountain. And I'm going Revelation 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Somebody was like, when are you going to get to the rapture? I'm like, uh, it's not in Revelation, actually. Right? 
But do I just never address it? Everyone's waiting there. They're waiting for rapture stuff. So do you just not talk about it? Or just, oh, it's only in the text. Well, I've got to think about the mountains in the minds of my listeners as well. So don't want to flatten those uh, on either side. Address them. I would say every sermon shouldn't be spending the bulk of the time on minutia because you'll lose the flow and agenda of the book. But skipping over or hurrying past those big mountain issues is not a good idea either. Number four. This is probably obvious, but I think this is some of the hard work of preaching through Revelation. Map the book into reasonable preaching units, which is what I gave you in that handout. Okay? And I'm not saying just do that. You should actually throw that away and do your own. You've got to do your own work and see it for yourself. Um, but map the book into reasonable preaching units. So think about a unit as a, a thought unit of the text where there is a discernible thesis that is different enough. This is the key. A discernible, different, a discernible thesis in this thought unit, whatever this pericope is, right? This, this section of verses that you're going to preach. If there's a discernible thesis there, then check to see if it's different enough from the prior and the next to sustain its own sermon. Otherwise, you might have three exact big ideas in a row, but you just broke it down because you didn't want to preach that big of a text. I would say sometimes you might want to try to preach a bigger text and move through the material a little faster. Each individual symbol doesn't need to have its own 15-minute slot in a sermon. And then earlier symbols, they get repeated later. You did that work, so just remind them you don't have to do it slowly each time. So if your units are looking too similar, consider taking a larger chunk. That makes sense? And just try to practice the discipline of moving through material a little faster in your sermon. Or discern whether, okay, these are similar ideas, but they're different enough where they can sustain their own sermon with emphases. So let's say you've got a judgment scene, but it's really long, it's protracted, but the first chunk focuses on the judge, and then the second chunk focuses on the judged. And then maybe you can have two different sermons where it doesn't feel like, I don't need to be there next week because you just, I had that last week. It's a little bit different enough. And so that's, that, you know, these are expandable, right? You can put new units together into bigger units, or you can break bigger units down into smaller units. But for me, that's what I'm thinking. I don't want it to be a repeat sermon. Is it distinct enough to sustain its own sermon? And that's how I develop my uh, map. Also, when I look through some of those, I'm like, they're going to need a breather in between those. So the fall of Babylon, I broke it into two. Between the rise of Babylon and the fall of Babylon, and right in between there, I had someone else preach. Just, let's come up for air for a week and do something a little different, and then I came back the next week. So sometimes you want to kind of pick your spots with regard to breaks. Okay, number five, just a couple more. Uh, I think we're pretty good on time, so this is great. All right, number five, number five, approaching the book of Revelation and I think these probably next couple ones are going to tip my hand a little bit if I haven't already with regard to where I come from, you know, positionally um, on eschatology. But don't press chronology. I think this is where we get timelines and charts that would require 15 whiteboards back here. And there's, you've seen these YouTube guys and they're running out of markers. It's, it's just really difficult when 
everything has to follow a chronological sequence and you're trying to fit it together and it, it doesn't work, but this is how you were told it's supposed to work. And, and I, I think that when I sort of relieved myself of that pressure, things started to click better for me personally. So I would say, when I say don't press chronology, what I mean is I'm not saying there's zero chronology. I'm just saying don't press it, don't force it. Be appropriately flexible with regard to framework. So be, be open to recapitulation where it fits and be open to sequence where it fits. So I sort of got enamored with the recapitulation stuff and then I didn't want to see any chronology at all and I'm like, I just don't think it works there. I think maybe that does actually happen next and that's okay, right? So, so, so be a little loose with regard to that. Let the text feed it to you as much as possible. A couple examples real fast. It's obvious that chapter 12, 1 through 5, where the dragon seeks to devour the male child, occurs before even the letters to the seven churches. I think that occurs even before all the events described in 6 through 11. So you go 6 through 11, and then chapter 12, if I'm understanding chapter 12 right, you're going back in time. This is, this is a flashback. It's not, it's not a prediction going forward. Well, I'll give you another example. Uh, in Romans 12, uh, 6, 12 through 17. So this is the first wrath text, which I have on the far right column on your handout. There's seven wrath texts. Here's the first one. And does this sound like the end? I mean, I don't know. Some, maybe some of you will approach me after lunch. You're like, no, it's not the end. I don't know. It, so I'm reading it. It's the sixth seal. John looks. There's a great earthquake. The sun becomes black as sackcloth. The full moon becomes like blood. The stars of the sky, fall. All the, they all fall to the earth. The sky, verse 14, vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. Every mountain, every island was removed from its place. The kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in a cave among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, oh, please, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Does that sound like the end? Just, on, just looking at it, I'm like, I, I mean, it sounds like the end, but the problem is that's just the sixth seal. You still have a seventh seal. You still have the trumpets. You still have the bowls. So now you've got to go, well, that was the end, but that wasn't really the end. And then the sky didn't really roll back, and now you're using your literalism that you were trying to protect with the chronology. It just, pressing that, I don't think works when you don't have to press it. Another example real quick is in Revelation 8. The first angel blows his trumpet, and the text tells us a third of the trees were burned up, and all the grass was burned up. So that was, that was um, trumpet number one. All the grass was burned up, and then in Revelation 9, the fifth angel blows his trumpet, and uh, this is where the locusts are released, and they were given like power of scorpions of the earth, and they were told not to harm the grass of the earth. What grass? It was all burned up. So then you commentators like, well, grass is resilient. <laughs> Not my grass. <laughs> I don't think we need to press it uh, to make it work. Um, I don't know. The quick example in chapter 8 is where hail and fire mixed with blood is thrown down on the earth. How can the hail and fire be mixed with blood before it hits and kills anybody? Right? And where this really becomes an issue is when Jesus 
in Revelation 19 is riding the white horse and his robe is dipped in blood. Okay? When, so when I'm sitting with seminary students around, that's one of the texts that uh, we've used. Half the students are like, that has to be the blood of the people he's about to kill because it's channeling Isaiah and Jesus is coming as the, the great uh, wine press treader. Right? And Isaiah is very clear. His spattered garments, it, it's, it's from him stomping his enemies. That's, that's what it's from. The other half of the class can't shake the fact that his, blood, his robe is already dipped in blood as he's riding, but he hasn't hit them yet. And so chronology is preventing them to see, from seeing the Isaiah connection and then importing Calvary. Well, it's got to be his sacrifice on the cross is how he kills his enemies. So I've asked students, well, explain to me how that works. It just has to be the blood of the Calvary. Because it's, he's already, chronologically, it doesn't work. So I've got to tell them, you're pressing it too hard. It doesn't have to be chronological. Think of it more of like a, a painting that you've stepped into, right? With Mary Poppins or something. And it's, it's not completely static, but it's not, a, it's not rolling footage either, right? It, it's different. And we've got to think of it a little bit differently. I've tried to use familiar images or genres to help my listeners loosen their grip on a straight, linear approach to Revelation. So one example I'll use is, uh, I'll, I'll explain recapitulation, like when a director is filming a scene, and then not going to a next scene, but the cut actually is just going to another camera angle on the same scene. Okay? And so it's a different angle. This person was small and this person's big, the camera angle changed, and now this person's big and this person's small, but it's not a different scene. It's the same scene. We're just seeing it from a different angle now. And that seems to just give us some familiar categories. We're not used to apocalyptic, but we're used to movies. And so if you can use something familiar, that might help them. Uh, a, a big example of that would be Clint Eastwood's Flags of Our Fathers and Letters from Iwo Jima. They're the same. It's the same movie shot from the perspective of these soldiers, and then the other movie is shot from the perspective in the same fight, but from the other soldiers. Some of y'all don't know what I'm talking about. That's okay. Go rent them. They're good. But again, same, same scene. It's showing you uh, through recapitulation, but from a different angle. I think that helps. Um, let's see here. Number six. Number six. Understand that Revelation primarily describes the symbols John sees not what the symbols mean. This is very helpful for me. Understand that Revelation primarily describes the symbols John sees. Revelation does not primarily describe what the symbols mean. This is why David Mathewson of uh, Denver Seminary has pointed out uh, that John could have said that he saw Jesus who was sacrificed for our sins But thanks be to God, he is all-powerful and he sees all things. John could have said that, but he doesn't. He says, he looked and he saw a lamb as if slain with seven horns and eyes. That's what he says. You have to get to the meaning through the symbol, but what John's giving you is the symbol, not the meaning. Okay, And if you're working your way through, you'll see how helpful that, that becomes. You're looking to see how these symbols work together to point to what they mean, rather than treating each symbol as its own 
almost its own meaning in and of itself, this, this uh, treating it at the level of the symbol. Maybe this will help. Um, in Dennis Johnson's commentary, Triumph of the Lamb, very good, I recommend it. He references Vern Poitras. I have that one too, The Returning King. I forget who put that one out. Um, but Poitras has argued for four levels of meaning. And the first level is linguistic. These are the words in front of you, right? The second level is visionary. That's the visual experience of John. So we're, we're kind of going backwards. The words that were put down as a result of what he saw. That's the visionary level. The referential level is the person's forces or events to which the images point. You're like, that's a lamb, but I know that's Jesus, right? So now we've moved from the visionary level to the referent the referential level. And then he talks about the symbolical level, what the visionary level is revealing about the referential level. So I see the lamb. I see the words lamb. Now I can, okay, what he saw was a lamb. Now we went to, from literary to linguistic to visionary. The lamb means Jesus. Now that's the referent. But now I've got to figure out what, what is the symbolism between that vision, the lamb, and the referent Jesus, what does it mean that Jesus is the lamb? Now, most of us have the right answer there because we're used to that one. But as soon as I start talking about horns and eyes, that takes a little more work. We're not as used to that one, but the discipline is the same. Okay, so that is important. And you, look, I didn't lay it out like that for my listeners. I didn't put a PowerPoint like visionary level. You know, I'm not doing that to them. But I think as a preacher, understanding what we're doing, we can help them go, okay, these are the symbols that he's seeing. How do we put those together? What do they mean? And you can use familiar ones like lamb to help them with the less familiar ones like horns and eyes. Um, So I think because of that, the old uh, interpret Revelation literal where possible, I think it's too, that hermeneutic is too one-dimensional. It's rather contrived, honestly. And I don't think it treats the levels of meaning seriously enough. So I don't think we should approach it. At, if, if it could be literal, it's, then it's literal. I just think that doesn't work, and I don't think it's helpful. And it's hard to be consistent that way. Um, one example is when I got to the city of Jerusalem dropping down. I know I've got congregants that are they're measuring it in their minds. They're like, wow, that's a big city, and it's going to be awesome. Uh, yeah, and could a city reach from like Banff, Canada to Houston, Texas? I mean, yeah, I, I, could it? Sure. But the height is the same. The height is the same. And if the height is the same, the top of the city, I mean, like if you think of the levels of our atmosphere and you're going up, okay, you're past the clouds, you're past like where the, the highest bird can ever get, you're past where planes uh, cruise, you're past uh, meter showers, keep going up. You're past um, the aurora borealis <laughs> lights. You're past the International Space Station. You're right at that cusp where our atmosphere has dissipated enough to start calling it outer space, and that's where the city tops off. We can sit here talking. How is that possible? Okay, we're gonna have. We don't need oxygen masks. It's glorified bodies, and we could just, you know, I hope I live in a penthouse. What are the symbols doing? Right? That's hanging out at the level of the, the visionary level and pressing the literalism 
rather than doing what we did with the lamb. We're not going, is Jesus' wool, does it have to be like sheared? Or because he died and resurrected, it's not shearable anymore. He's not a lamb, dude. And you don't have to say that to anybody because we get that instinctually, but suddenly when we get to a city dropping out of the sky, that has to have literal dimensions, and I just think it's inconsistent. Um, as these examples abound, I mean, uh, the nature of the 144,000, if we want to get a little more controversial, right, in chapter 7, I think some think that, that the, the 144,000 followed up immediately by the great innumerable multitude cannot be the same group of people. But I'll just give you something for consideration. The text tells us that John heard the number of the sealed from every tribe of Israel, which when you go through, you're like, these aren't the tribes of Israel, but that, we can unpack that over lunch. The text says he heard the number of the sealed from every tribe of Israel, the 144,000, but then when he turns and looks, he sees a great multitude. And this is very similar to when uh, earlier in chapter 5, the elders announced to John, they announced to John, so he hears an announcement that, hey, who can open this scroll? The lion's here. And he hears the announcement of the lion, but then when he turns and looks, whoops, he doesn't see a lion, he sees what? A lamb. But again, we're so used to these symbols, we're like, yeah, lion, lamb. Same referent. Well, why can't two different symbols be the same referent in another passage? Why do they have to be different? And what they'll do is they'll point to the differences in the symbol. Well, this symbol has 144,000, and this symbol says innumerable. Because the symbols are different, they can't be the same thing. Let's talk about the differences between lions and lambs. Different aspects of the same thing. You turn the image to a different image, but you're looking at the same referent. Why can't that happen there? Now, I'm not saying that should force your decision on the 144,000, but it's too simplistic to just say this he saw first, or he heard this first, and then it says he saw this next. Again, that's pressing chronology too hard. Because he sees something next doesn't mean that something happens next. It just means that's what he saw next. Okay. I promised to myself I wouldn't preach. All right, so... Uh, to try to bring this home and wrap this up. Um, that means with regard to symbols, okay, with regard to symbols, I think this is some of the hard stuff that we've got to work through. Uh, what we're doing when we're moving through the book of Revelation is we're tracking shifts in the reference by tracking with the meaning, not just linguistic cues. Some of you that were in seminary, remember when you first were learning Greek and you're like, oh, you wanted to make a new main point in your sermon for every gar that appeared in your passage. There's 14 guards. I got 14 points. Man, no, you don't. Read it again and try to read through the prepositions a little bit. Okay, and that's sort of what we're doing with Revelation. You don't just, a new symbol, new point. Not necessarily. New symbol, new reference. Maybe, but not necessarily. Try to see what the symbols, how they're cooperating together and what they're communicating and try to preach that. Okay. Um. And one more thing to just say about that. I, I think if we view Revelation as a cluttered complex of entangled layers, we'll either preach sermons that are just as difficult to follow, or we won't preach it at all. So what I'm trying to do is help, help you think about clearing the clutter a little bit so that you can present it in a listenable fashion. Okay, finally, number seven. Focus on the major themes supported by the symbols, and I'll just do this quickly. 
focus on the major themes supported by the symbols more than the symbols as individual pieces. I'll say it one more time. I'll just give a quick, easy example and then uh, move on. Focus on the major themes supported by the symbols more than focusing on the symbols themselves as individual pieces. So one example would be you could spend a lot of time on the dragon, let's say, and the beasts, and who could that beast be, and is it the Antichrist, and if it is the Antichrist, like, is it the Pope then, or can I not sign the full Westminster, or, like, what, you know, is it, is it this, the new party candidate for whatever, you know, running for president, so, like, who is this dude? You could spend a lot of energy there and completely miss uh, the, the prominent theme of Satan's mimicry of our triune God. That between the dragon and uh, the beasts, you have, well, I'll just put it as, uh, as Poitras puts it in, the returning king. Uh, Poitras describes Satan as a, as, uh, or he says, Revelation describes Satan as a counterfeiting enemy. The dragon counterfeits God, the beast counterfeits the lamb, the false prophet is a sham Holy Spirit, and the harlot is a fake church. That's the stuff you don't want to lose by trying to figure out dimensions, whether the city fits in Canada, who the Antichrist is. I'm not saying don't ever address those things, and I'm not here to change your eschatology, but I I think we need to try to the themes that Revelation is emphasizing throughout, we don't want to lose those themes, the mountains in the text, because they're overshadowed by the, only the mountains in the minds of our listeners, or maybe in our own minds, the things that we bring to the table. So there's other examples of that, but I'll, I'll close it there. I think that is probably sufficient. The last thing I'll do, and I'll maybe just take five or ten minutes of questions. If I like the questions, we'll keep it going, and if I don't, we're just going to break early for lunch. Um, the printout uh, that I gave you, just a quick explanation of that. On, on the leftmost column, those are the preaching units that I did. And then I'm interfacing those with a plausible structural layout of the book. A, a simple, arguably overly simplistic maybe, uh, layout of the book that I kind of, some of it is like... Uh, some of you have read More Than Conquerors by William Hendrickson, and his outline that he commends in there is kind of like this one. Um, and where we overlap is we see a great amount of recapitulation between those uh, six of the seven scenes. So you'll see seven major units there. And there's like a little dotted line between separating the seven churches, the seven lampstands from the rest. Um, but from unit two on, those arrows on the right, that are kind of pointing backwards are showing you there's great recapitulation. Not exact recapitulation. They don't cover the exact same material, but there's a a great amount of recapitulation between those seven units. So that's what those arrows are uh, pointing to there. All right, so I'm hoping that this has given you at least a broad outline of the book and how your, that, that handout in particular, how your preaching units might play out if you were to preach it maybe at a medium pace, I think you could easily be in Revelation for two or three years. That'd probably be a little much, my opinion. I guess it depends on your situation, your congregation. 
But I think plowing through it in four or five sermons, that's, that's probably a mistake. Um, but you need to kind of figure out how you're going to divide up your preaching units. I, I should have done the Millennium one in two sermons. And the reason why is contextual. I lean toward an amillennial position. And so now I've got to defend how in the world Satan is bound and what in the world the first resurrection is in that text. Right? And because I've got to spend a little more time there, I covered both in one sermon, and I immediately knew over lunch that was a mistake. Right? I should have just split it up and say, hey, today we're going to talk about the binding of Satan, defend it, explain it, and then the next week do the resurrection thing. But I just kept it how I did it, mistakes included. Right? Okay, let me just open up for just, uh, and I'm scared to do this, because y'all probably know more about <laughs> Revelation than I do, but... Uh, I'll do my best to just maybe take a couple quick questions. and I, There's also a Q&A later as well, so I'll just do a couple quick ones and then we'll, we'll close in some worship. Anything that I can clarify, uh, John? Yeah, um, well, for someone who's less academic than you, perhaps, you know, how much work do you think needs to be done beforehand and then you know, to save you some time from just getting bogged down and feeling panic every, every week? Do you have any ideas? Yeah. Don't see myself very academic. Um, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, get, I get what you're saying, John. Uh, I, you know, you can overdo it where you're just never going to preach Revelation. Like, you're never going to preach it if you're, what you're waiting for is such a command of the material that you're internationally known for your just untouchable knowledge of the top. I mean, it's just, this is not going to happen. Um, but I also didn't want to just, let's just jump in, and maybe I start Amil and I end Primil. Hey, you know, like, I didn't want to just be willy-nilly, although I did leave myself open, like, hey, if I need to change course as we go through Revelation, I'm learning too, and I want the congregation to give me some flexibility to go, you know what, actually, I'd take sermon number two back now that we're in sermon number 13, and here's why. Because we're not perfect, and it's hard to figure these things out. But I wanted to try to minimize that by uh, trying to figure out what my number one questions are. So if I feel like, I'm, I'm not pre-mill, but I'm not on-mill. I kind of feel like I'm on-mill, but I still have a, a few lingering things. Well, let, let me just write, what are those lingering questions, and attack that. And try to figure out, are there plausible ways to explain that, that seem to me more plausible than on the other position. Then I can just say, right now... Where as, as, as things are right now, here's, here's where I'm coming from with regard to it. But, you know, there's, there's one millennium chapter, and uh, to, to allow two or three things that are confusing to us to keep us from moving through a book where there's large agreement on the outlook of the church, um, I, I think would be a mistake to put it off too long. So two things I did is uh, we preached for a long time New Testament book, Old Testament book, New Testament book, Old Testament book. And especially in the Old Testament books, I'm, I'm emphasizing typology, patterns, uh, re- the redemptive arc of history under which all these narratives, even law, fit, um, all of that kind of stuff, so that when we get to Revelation, that was a little bit easier in our context. And then I grabbed four or five commentaries that I thought were uh, helpful, clear, and I just started, I mapped it out and, and went for it. So at some point, you just have to jump in, you know.
One or two more, Israel? Yeah, uh, Vern Poitras, Return of the King, especially his introductory stuff in, uh, before he gets into the commentary. It's not the commentary stuff's bad, but the introductory stuff is really helpful. Um, Triumph of the Lamb by Dennis E. Johnson. Um, he's also, he's a New Testament scholar. He's also a homiletician. So he just, I think that commentary really hits for what a preacher needs. Uh, it's a good sweet spot. Um, I read through most of like Sam Storm's um, whatever that big one is called, the amillennial alternative or something like that, um, because he, he hits on lots of different issues I knew I was going to have to tackle at some point, and he does a good job of sort of curating the, the most relevant text for you. Uh, G.K. Beale's big one on Revelation is like an obvious one. Um, I mentioned William Hendrickson, More Than Conquerors, really good. Some spots, he's just like, look, this is just what it is. It's clear. I'm like, okay, man, you know, he's just very... Uh, but it's helpful uh, to hear that perspective. Richard Bauckham, Theology of Revelation, really helpful. Small, short, not quite as readable as the others, but good, helpful. Um, so those are, I, I would at least start there. Will? Symbolical. The first one's linguistic. Yeah, good question. Um, well, I, I think what I've tried to do at our church, and we're, I'm not saying this is how churches should do it, we have a, in some ways, in a, it, it's beneficial, but it, we have a, a sort of stripped-down doctrinal statement. It's not, it doesn't pinpoint things like election, or with eschatology, and Jesus returns, he wins, there is a judgment. Uh, we do have eternal conscious torment in there. Um, the resurrection of the body. But beyond that, we haven't pressed eschatology. So what I do with issues like that is I try to explain to the congregation that uh, while we're not demanding unanimity on every area of doctrine in the church, I, I have to preach it from a perspective. It, you know, I'm, and I don't want to apologize for that. Like, I, I'm, I'm a tulip guy. I don't demand it of our membership, but I'm going to handle Romans a little differently than, than maybe even my predecessor did. So I, I try to say, um, this is, there's, there's room for some disagreement in our congregation, but in my study, this is the perspective I have landed on, and this is what I'm commending to you. Don't you think it's clear? Don't you think it makes sense? But I try to do it without mocking the other positions and sort of applying a I don't know, a, 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 a pressure, an unspoken pressure to, to conform, or you're an idiot. But I also, I don't want to turn every sermon into a, a five views, but I won't tell you what I think, kind of, you know, I didn't want to do that either. Does that kind of hit where you're... Right, yeah. I think I have a, a general sense. Some of them are here, so I've got an elder here and a staff guy here. I get a general sense that there's broad agreement, but I don't think they would handle every 
section exactly the same way. So sometimes in an elders meeting, we're like, yeah, but there's this. And I'm like, I know, I get that, but I see it this. And uh, it's an unspoken thing, but it's kind of like, well, you have the pulpit, so, I mean, you've got to say it the way you say it, but if they were saying it, they, they might say it different. And I, I think our church is okay with that. It's also a pretty small church, so I'm not, I don't have like a, you say leadership team? I, it's, <laughs> it's just a couple dudes, man, you know? Like, it's not a, it's not a huge operation. Uh, I think, but there were also, early on, and I don't mean it as a joke, I mean, the, the cult thing refreshed our appreciation for the unity that we do have. I'm, I'm more okay with the dispensational standing next to me in the trenches fighting for the things we agree on because these cult dudes are nuts. And they're, they're, they try to break up the church. They try to get people into their Bible studies from our church um, to steal them. It was very wolfy. Um, and so we had to handle that. And that, you know, the dude with, you know, America's the eagle, I just want to give him a hug because I know he knows... He, he holds firmly to the things that count and matter. So I think we're at the time. I'm going to hand it back over to Clayton, and I'll see you all at lunch. Thank you.